Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Hello and welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Kate Harmon, Social Media Manager for Ignatius Press. And today I'm speaking with Joseph Pierce. Joseph is the Director of Book Publishing for the Augustine Institute. And he has written many, many books, including literary biographies of Oscar Wilde, Hilaire Belloc, G.K. Chesterton, J.R.R. Tolkien, and many, many others. Um, He's written books on Shakespeare and poetry and other literary and historical topics. His latest book is Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England, now available at Ignatius.com and your local Catholic bookstore. Joseph, welcome. It's good to be here. Now, the subtitle of your newest book is A History of True England. Can you tell us what you mean by true England? Yes, uh, ultimately, true England is the England that's remained true to the truth or and, and specifically true to the truth himself. In other words, Jesus Christ. So just as each of us uh, as individuals uh, is true or false, depending upon the extent to which we are true to the good, the true and the beautiful or the way, the truth and the life. That's true of nations which are collectives for human persons as well as individuals. So the the, Eng- the English history I celebrate is the history of, of that part of England that's remained true to Christ from the first century to the 21st century. So I, I think it's fair to say, even acknowledging England's Catholic past, that many people today think of England as a thoroughly Protestant country. Uh, would you dispute that characterization? Well, uh, again, I've, two things I would say. I, on a purely secular level, it would be much truer to say that it's uh, a secularized agnostic country. It ceased to be Protestant a long time ago, <laughs> insofar as it ever was truly Protestant. That's that's you know, something I grapple with in the book. But on a deeper level, um, I said that there's obviously, you know, each of us uh, that, that we we are we that we parts of our life are being true and good and following. Christ and living in a state of grace and part of us is not following Christ and and, and living in sin um so again what's true of uh of um of each of us is true of England so so the England that I celebrate uh is is actually Catholic for 20 20 centuries and we need to remember that when England is most Protestant and when England is most anti-Catholic is also the time when England produces uh, great martyrs and saints there was 150 years uh, of English history from the 1530s to the 1680s when Catholic priests and laity are being put to death for the practice of their faith. And even when that 150 years of executions comes to an end, there's a further 150 years of persecution mm-hmm. where uh, not, Catholics are not being put to death, but they have all sorts of legal uh, obstacles to, the, to, to their being able to live as equals in their own country. So we have 300 years of uh, anti-Catholic darkness, but for but for me that they are the golden years of the <laughs> England. So you know we have to. I, I'm I'm taking a transcendent a transcendent approach. Is that you no? Know, this is this is England made in the image of God as one of the many flowers uh, of the, all the, each nation, if you like, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, is a unique flowering in the garden of God. Well, I'm looking at that Christian flower, which is Christian England, uh, which is, uh, has always been there. And I, I you know in, in the worst times when, when it was almost wiped out, 
Mm -hmm. I call that the thin true line. And that thin true line does go through and keeps the uh, the England of the of the persecution uh, in communion with the England since then and the Merry England prior to that and indeed the early England. And indeed, as my book says, the England before England, because mm -hmm. Christ and Christianity was in England before England was called England. That's how far back it goes to the first century. Very good. Do you think that gives... English Catholicism a different character than that would be found in other countries, maybe even including those that are also very heavily influenced by the Protestant Reformation. Oh yes, indeed. I think I think every nation is a unique flowering. You know, as, as every as every tree is unique. You know, God doesn't mass produce things. God loves things into being. So whereas every single you know, individual tree, I look out the window here, I see many of them. Uh, each one of those is loved into being as you as a unique creature of God. Well, every nation is also unique in the same way, and it has its own story. Its its own history is its own story, and you know, as always, there are aspects of that history where that country has been true to the faith, aspects where that country has reneged on the faith or persecuted the faith. But the England that the, so the country, the nation, so I'm hoping actually my book will, will inspire people to write a book on true Ireland, true Scotland, true France. You know, to to actually look at how each individual nation has an aspect of its story which has been true to Christ from the very beginning and to the present day. Mm -hmm. Well, and you mentioned towards the end of your book, I think, um, in the last battle, uh, you know, the characters are given a glimpse of real England. Um, and I, it, it also rem reminded me a lot of another work of C.S. Lewis at the end of that hideous strength. Um, there's a reference to sort of the animating spirit of each country and kind of wake, awake, it awakening. So England has its sort of it's true, it's true animating spirit, but then there's also one unique to France and to other countries as well. Um, so I, I, was yeah, I think it, every nation uh, under God uh, is a unique individual uh, that's made in, in some sense in the image of God because nations are human things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so so uh, they're basically, it's, it's the story of a people through time. Uh, and uh, I think that we can be inspired in every nation by the stories of those who have been true to Christ, you know, it, during good times and bad, sickness and health, rich or poorer, etc. Because, yeah, you know, it is true that our relationship with Jesus Christ is, is, is like a, a marriage. He's the bridegroom. We're the bride. And what's true of, uh, of us as individuals uh, is also true of nations, right? That the Christ is the bridegroom. Each nation, in some mystical sense, is a bride of Christ. Now, how loyal that bride is um, uh, as as uh, collective entities, you know, can be unfaithful. But individuals within that nation are always staying true in in, in good times and bad. So the structure of your book was very interesting to me. There are twenty eight chapters overall, I think, including. There is a prologue and an epilogue. Um, the first seven chapters are pre-Reformation England, so taking you through Roman Britain up until the Protestant Reformation. Um, then the next nine chapters are that Protestant Reformation era, so the reign of King Henry VIII through Elizabeth I. And then I think the remaining 12 chapters take you from the death of Elizabeth I to the present day. Uh, why did you structure the book in this way with so much of the, the large chunk of that middle portion covering about a hundred years or so of history. 
Well, I suppose, you know, we're, we're recording this in Holy Week. Um, mm-hmm. You know, why why is so much of the life of Christ concentrated on, on, on the passion? Um, because, of course, that's the point. Uh, and for me, the, the 150 years of persecution from the 1530s to the 1680s, it didn't end with Elizabeth. It carried on under James and Charles. Um, that, uh, that to me, that's the, that's England's passion. That is that is England, the true England, being crucified with with her Lord, um, uniting herself with Christ on the cross. So for me, that those that that particular time is the is the most glorious time. Not Merry England, as much as we want to celebrate Merry Catholic England. You know, not the land of saints during the time of the Anglo Saxons. As much as we want to celebrate that, it's 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 England nailed to the cross for her love of Jesus Christ, which to me is the glory. And of course, it's only through that crucifixion, ultimately, that England is redeemed and brought to resurrection. It's that through England, which, as Lewis, as as you rightly say, following sort of Plato and what have you, it's that through England which will still exist in heaven, not the false England, which will cease to, which we will not obviously be in England, because there's nothing false and untrue and wicked and evil in heaven. But all that which is true and good and beautiful will still be. So you're the author of many biographies, and I think what makes this book very accessible is you relate the history through the lives of men and women, their struggles. Uh, We could, I mean, there are so many in this book that we could talk about right now, but I was hoping you could talk a little bit about John Henry Newman um, in particular. You call his conversion to Catholicism a defining moment in the Catholic revival. Explain to us why his conversion was so pivotal. Yes, well, you know, by the time that he that Newman is received into the church in 1845, it's it's been all just slightly over uh, 300. Uh, three, God, my not my math isn't good. That's why I do literature. 300 years, you know, 310 years um, from the execution of St John Fisher and and, and St Thomas More. So um, what we see with the conversion of Newman is the beginning of the, the birth, if you like, of the Catholic revival in England and this period of, 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 of if you like, Catholic resurrection, which uh, Newman's conversion heralded. You know, with Newman's conversion, uh, he was so well respected and widely respected both in the Protestant world and in the secular world and within the establishment that his conversion, if you like, through the gates wide open, that the Catholicism can no longer be marginalised as a foreign religion, uh, mm-hmm. as something which is not for England. Well, Newman was quintessentially English, and his conversion mm-hmm. basically brought brought Catholicism home again. So it was crucial. Without, without a conversion of Newman, it's possible we would not have had the Catholic cultural revival. We might not have had Chesterton. We might not have had you know, some of these other great whites of the 20th century, but hadn't been for Newman's conversion. Mm-hmm. Well, and your chapter on Newman, you pair him with Cardinal Manning, who I think is perhaps certainly not as well known in the United States. I'm not sure about England per se, but can you talk a little bit about Cardinal Manning and why you pair him with Newman, who is this huge, huge figure? Yeah, well, they're, 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 in many ways, they're a dynamic duo, um, <laughs> not like Batman and Robin, obviously, uh, a bit, bit more sublime than that. But uh, they, they, they're twin pillars. Uh, twin towers, if you like, of, of, of Victorian Catholic England. And certainly if you see uh, Catholic England within, Victorian Catholic England within the context of the time itself, Manning was certainly as present as a powerful force as Newman. It's in posterity uh, that, uh, that Newman overshadows Manning, and Manning sort of somewhat disappears in Newman's shadow. And at the time, they were both giants. That much has been said by the 
um, biographers of both men uh, about their differences. They had their differences on various on various issues, but that doesn't negate from the fact that both of them were uh, a, a giant presence in Victorian Catholic England. And what I've tried to do, of course, is a, a good work of history should be trying to see the, the time within the context of the time itself, not judging it from the uh, perspective of the future looking back. So that's what I've tried to do in studying the Victorian time is to give Manning his, his, his due because he was a giant presence in Victorian England. Mm-hmm. I, I always think it's a little unfair to ask an author, why didn't you write something that isn't in the book? Um, but I would be curious to know, uh, it's, how long is this book? Almost 400 pages. It's very, there's a lot here. There's a lot to unpack, but I still have the feeling that maybe there are things that you would have tried to get in if you possibly could have. Is there a figure or uh, maybe a movement that you wish you either you either weren't able to get into in a single volume history or maybe you you, you wanted to to do, spend more time with? Well, I, I suppose that, you know, that I, I can't I can't draw or paint to save my life. Um, <laughs> but I, I do know that obviously if you're going to draw something, uh, you, you have to get the proportions right. Uh, otherwise, it's a bad drawing. And what's what's true of a work of visual art like that is also true of a work of uh, of history, that you have to get the proportions right. Um, now, I, I said I, I focused on those three hundred years because to me that's the that's the passion of England. So that that is part of if you talk about true England, that is mm-hmm. still part of the Jew Jew proportion. Um, you, you know, you, you all spend more time on the passion of Christ than the parables, and that and that's that's correct. Um, but uh, of course, there are parts of history I know better. So well, I've already stu- I've studied more. So certainly the, the Elizabethan period and the figure of Shakespeare uh, could, could have said much more, but I don't think I should have said much more. In other words, I needed to keep Shakespeare in proportion and not let him stick out like a, like a false nose. Tempting, <laughs> uh, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and the same thing with the, with the 19th and 20th century. Of course, I've done a lot of work with those 19th and 20th century Catholic literary figures. And it would have been good. I certainly could have said much more about figures such as Chesterton or Belloc um, or Tolkien and Lewis or, or indeed Newman, uh, mm-hmm. Hobkins. I mean, there's so many I could have said more about. Um, but again, that, I think it would have been out of out of due proportion had I done so. So I don't I don't I think I've got to, I think I'm happy with the way that I've handled things in due proportion, due decorum. Mm-hmm. And so there's nothing I think I should have said. I mean, I'm sure there were things I didn't see. That would be good if they were in there. Um, but of all, but of all that, all, all the evidence presented itself to me. Um, I think I presented it in a way which is which is uh, balanced, and and I would have become unbalanced if I allowed my own personal enthusiasms and expertise <laughs> to get the better of me. Well, and I'll say as a reader. I was almost surprised at how much time and how much history was packed into the single volume. And I think, I think it was because of that kind of biographical approach that you take where you are focusing on individuals who, who were important in specific periods. Um, it, so it feels personal. It doesn't feel like you're, you're reading a dry history text. It doesn't feel like you're, it doesn't, it also doesn't feel like you're being dragged through something really quickly. So I, that well, that, well, thank you. That that on both, but, but that means I've, I've, I follow the via media, which was certainly the intention. And certainly, your history is a story, and there's no reason 
Well, if we look at the past, we should not see it as such. Um, as each of our own individual life stories is a story, our own personal histories are stories. So are collective histories, histories of nations. So I certainly meant to tell it as a story. Uh, obviously, it needs to be a true story. I can't be fabricating things or getting things out of proportion. Um, but um, I, I do think I've tried to tell the, the, the story truly and in due proportion uh, and you know, to, to focus on true England. So I don't want to give people the wrong impression of this book, uh, that it's melancholy or gloomy or a depressing read, because it is absolutely none of those things. Yet there is a sense of loss, I would say, that kind of permeates this book. Um, the early chapters, you know, you get these beautiful descriptions of these wonderful shrines and these thriving monasteries and all of the deep popular piety that existed in England. Um, but then there's always that line, right? Like this was destroyed during Henry VIII's desecration of the monasteries, or this tradition was suppressed under Elizabeth I. Is that sense of loss something that English Catholics still carry with them, do you think? Or is there more of a sense of hope? Well, I think both. I, I, I do think that obviously in, if, if you live in England, which obviously I did for 40 years, the landscape mm -hmm. is... Uh, in some sense scarred, but in, in, in the other case, actually beautified by, by the presence of these monastic ruins that are all over the place. Um, they, they serve as a, as a monument to, to, to a, a golden age of, of Merry England, um, where there were monasteries and converts, dot, converts dotted all over the place. So, of course, there's a sense of loss, but in many respects, uh, I am at least as inspired by the heroic resistance to, to, to that uh, ripping uh, the Catholic heart away from England, uh, which literally was what happened to many of the Catholic martyrs who literally did have their hearts ripped out of them as part of the bloody process of hanging, drawing and quartering. They, they've gone to heaven, right? And really, ultimately, we have to understand that, you know, St. Augustine shows us that you know, we, we, are, we are desiring the city of God, but we're living in the city of man. So, you know, what what the tr true England is an England that's always uh, following the, uh, the the teaching of Christ and the gospel of St. Matthew. Matthew. Now, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the heart of true England always had its treasure in heaven. And that treasure is sacrosanct and can't be taken away from it by any, any anybody living in the in the city of man. So in that sense, you know, they're, they're, it all points to heaven. And insofar as it points to heaven, of course, it's full of hope. It's full of faith, full of charity. And I think that true England, that's what we see. It's a history which is full of faith, hope, and charity. Yes. Well, again, the book is Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England by Joseph Pierce, available now at Ignatius Press and at your local Catholic bookstore. Joseph, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Absolutely my pleasure, Kate. Thanks for having me. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.